Gracious Father of all, in this new year, shine your light upon us, that, Father, we might see our way forward. Father, we pray that in all things we would exhibit the integrity of a Joseph, integrity that was based, Father, on his faith in you and trust in your integrity. And Father, we pray this day uh, that as our church enters this new year, we pray for all seven fellowship, that they will continue to grow and to prosper and to be blessed by you. And Father, we pray uh, for our children uh, that as we go through this year that uh, uh, Amanda and the children's program and our Sunday school would, uh, would enrich their spirits and their minds. And Father, we pray uh, for uh, our adult study programs, our Sunday school, and all the teachers and people who, uh, Father, share your word. Father, for all that we do as a church together, we pray that, that ultimately it is to your glory. We pray that it is so that we might fulfill that mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That, Father, uh, those who are in need of him, their lives would be transformed by him. And Father, we pray this day for, uh, for all those in our world, uh, the vast majority of whom do not have the things that we have, Father. Those who daily uh, seek for just that, uh, that daily bread to, to sustain them. We pray for those, Father, who are uh, in areas where violence and war are common. And we pray, Father, for, uh, for churches everywhere that as Christians we would rise up in your name, in the name of the Prince of Peace. And we would call for every human being to treat each other with respect and with love. Father, in this new year, may your blessings pour out upon us so that we might be a blessing to the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And we pray that he would have his way in our hearts today. And amen. Good morning. Uh, and Happy New Year. Uh, y'all join me in the prayer for guidance. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with glad hearts what you say to us today. Amen. Today's scripture is Genesis 39, verse 1 through 10, found on page 36 of the Pew Bible. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought or bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a, a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found the Lord... Um, found favor, I'm sorry, in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blesses the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing was of the Lord was that all that he had in the house and field So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And with him there, 
He had no concern for anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome and good-looking, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, with me here my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. Because you are his wife, how then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. The word of God for the people of God. As I said in our announcements, we begin a sermon series on choices, and uh, uh, later on in February, uh, we are going to have, as a United Methodist Church, we're going to have choices that are going to be made, and so I thought it would be a good time for us to have a series on folks in the Bible and how they made their choices, what was uh, the common uh, thread among them. Uh, in the way that they made choices. And, you say, and you're saying, well, what choices? Well, we can begin right with Adam and Eve. Uh, they aren't going to be one of the stories that we talk about, but Adam and Eve would be one instance. They had choices to make. And what was the basis of their choices, the choices that they made that ultimately were tragic? Uh, we go through uh, Scripture and we see uh, uh, Samson had choices to make. And uh, he had uh, he he made a choice that brought him uh, great despair and uh, and really ruined his life. But at the end, he had another choice to make that brought triumph out of that despair. Uh, you have David, obviously. David had a tendency to make poor choices at times, just like Peter does uh, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And yet, at other times, uh, he is uh, he is triumphant in his choices, and God uh, loves him for that. Uh, you have others, uh, Zacchaeus, who uh, climbs up in the tree. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree, the Savior for to see. You know that little song there. We'll talk about Zacchaeus. How did he make his choice that he was going to that day put his faith in Jesus Christ? And so we're going to be looking at these choices in all two. And, and I, I begin with Joseph, who uh, in, in Genesis, from chapter 36 to 50, or about one-third of the book of Genesis is devoted to the story of Joseph. Now, most of you, when you think of Joseph here, uh, I hope you don't think of Mary uh, and baby Jesus in the manger. We're not talking about that, Joseph. <laughs> We're talking about the Joseph who had the technicolor dream coat, the many-colored uh, uh, coat that uh, made his brothers jealous because it was a sign from the father who gave it to him that he was their favorite, his favorite song. Uh, son and and there were twelve brothers to to joseph and uh, or tw- there were twelve sons all totaled they uh, they had uh, well if you took twelve boys and put them together in a family, they pretty much had a relationship that you would expect to have there uh, there was jealousy there was fighting, and in the case of Joseph, there was uh, the final uh, thing that they got so angry with him and so jealous of him that they threw him into a pit. Uh, at one point, they were going to uh, just kill him outright. But uh, one of the brothers convinced them not to do this, and so they threw him into a pit, and they, and they sold him into slavery and uh, to some, uh, some merchants who were traveling by, and he ended up in Egypt. And so the rest of the story of Joseph is, is really a story of somebody who has to figure out, now that I'm in this place, 
now that I am in this situation, how do I live for God? And see, see, he is in this terrible situation, and looking back at his brothers, his family, he feels betrayed by his family. He's, he's a slave in, in Egypt, a strange land. Uh, no doubt he doesn't even know the language when he gets there. And how is this all going to turn out? And very easily, he could have said what a lot of us say in situations like that, my Lord, how could you abandon me? God, how could you let this happen? And you could just have this short-sighted view of, the, of it and say, say, this is a disaster. I'm giving up on God. I don't trust him anymore. But that wasn't how Joseph did it. Joseph instead lives his life through those 14, 15 chapters of Genesis. Everything that we read about him, his life, his compass is oriented on God. See, the, uh, one of the definitions uh, of integrity is that having, having integrity means doing the right thing in a reliable way. That's what Joseph does. That's what he has, integrity. He does the right thing in a reliable way, meaning reliable meaning not just occasionally, not just when the situation fits, but in every situation he is going to be reliable. God can rely on him. It means that a person has a moral compass that doesn't waver, making them trustworthy. Their moral compass does not waver, so they are trustworthy. They trust in the God who is trustworthy. And, you know, this, this idea of a compass, I think, is a great way to think about this because how many of us know where our eternal compass is pointing to? It may be pointing to success. And so everything that we do, uh, that internal moral compass points us toward success. Whatever decisions we make, the choices we make, are oriented toward success or fame or just getting along with the least amount of effort. Some people, that's their goal in life. It's just how, how can I just get along, get through this thing without getting into trouble and without having to do too much work? It may be any, any number of things. It could be political success. It could be, uh, uh, again, uh, financial success. Any, a lot of folks, the majority of folks in our world, these are the, 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 the things to which their internal compasses are pointing. Now, for the Christian, when we become a Christian, when we sing a song like Have Thine Own Way, what we're saying is, Lord, my internal compass, and we hope that the world sees this, my internal compass is pointed toward God. And so everything I'm doing is God-oriented. I'm seeking God's favor. I'm seeking God's will. And so instead of looking at the world, sometimes our compass is oriented towards opinion. We want people to have a favorable opinion of us. And so we'll do whatever it takes to gain their good opinion. And we don't want to be in a place of conflict. What I've noted, you can see this historically. This is a true, a true thing. Most people muddle to the middle when it comes to decisions. Now, by that I mean, it's, it's, you remember when in Revelation, uh, Jesus says, I, I, I would really prefer that you were hot or cold, but instead you're lukewarm. He says this to this church. You're lukewarm. You're in the middle. And so you make me sick and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's what he says. You see, God would rather have us make a firm decision one way or the other than to sit in the middle and straddle the fence. That's a place of great danger, and yet it is where most of us go when decisions have to be made. How can I make the decision a decision in such a way that I'm not committed to anything? 
How can I make it where I kind of disappear into the crowd and I don't stand out? How can I do it so I, I'm not going to be persecuted by anybody? You look back historically, uh, for instance, uh, I'll just give this, and, and then I'm going to move into to three little snippets of Scripture uh, about Joseph and his decisions. You look historically at, for instance, the American Revolution. Uh, how, what was the percentage of people living in the colonies, the colonists, who act, actually actively participated in that revolution in some way? Uh, they were representatives to, to the Continental Congress. They joined the uh, rebel army and fought. How many people? I think the estimates, this is way back, I didn't double-check this, but the estimates I used to hear was somewhere around 18% of the people actively supported the revolution. The others were waiting to see how it came out. And so if the British army came along and said, we need some supplies, they'd say, here it is. If the rebels came along and said, we need some supplies, they'd say, here it is. They were going, whatever it was to avoid trouble, they were going that way. That holds true for almost every great movement in human history. The, the, the muddled mass in the middle, that's where most people go. And so when we make choices as a church, what you'll find is a lot of times what I find as a pastor in this church or in any church, that when there is an issue at hand, you have people who feel very strongly over here. And you have people who feel very strongly over here, but I always know that the majority of people are going to be here in the middle. They're going to want to make the decision that causes them the least amount of inconvenience, that brings about the least amount of change. And that's what they're looking for. But Joseph wasn't like that. Joseph was somebody who said, whatever decisions, whatever choices I have to make, even if it brings me trouble, I'm going to make it based upon God's will and God's, what God has, has shared with me. Uh, so it, you know, it's easy to say that you love God, isn't it? But it's, Really difficult to say, I trust God and to truly trust him in every circumstance. And, and, and Joseph just wasn't saying, I love God, I love the idea of God, I love God when he's blessing me, but he was saying, I trust God in all circumstances. So let's go to a couple of these. Uh, 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 I've got three little snippets here, and it's a communion Sunday, so I'm aware that uh, the sermon is a little bit, a little bit shorter today. Uh, Genesis 39 uh, and this was our, our, uh, our scripture that Jerry just read. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. How many of you guys relate to that? Okay. Uh, you know, he's, uh, by the time his story is over uh, in chapter 50, uh, he's done a lot. I mean, he has basically ruled over Egypt. Pharaoh has given him the authority to make all the decisions. He's 30 years old, it tells us. And he lives on to 110. So we only know those first 30 years. He did a lot in 30 years. So he's well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Hey, come on to bed with me. I, I, I was going to imitate her voice, but that's a dangerous thing here. I don't know how she would have said that. But, but she was tempting him. And it said... And, and men, this, 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 this next few chapters, men and women, these, these uh, next few verses are a key, I think, uh, to withstanding sexual temptation. It says, but he refused. And he told her, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself. Uh, Potiphar, uh, the husband here, 
has put Joseph in charge of his household. You see, coming in as a slave, they could see something was in Joseph, a quality there that you could trust him. He trusted God, and inside of him, he reflected that same trustworthiness. So he had been put in charge. And so he says to, to the wife, he says, he says uh, no one is greater in this house than I am. Everything you, your, your husband owns, he has entrusted to my care. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you. You're the only, only thing here. You're the only uh, person here. You're the only, the only thing that has a sign that says, do not touch. Because you are his wife. But listen to this. This is a key, key uh, statement here. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God. Now, you'd almost expect reading that that the statement would be, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against your husband? But remember, Joseph is not oriented toward anyone except God. And so he sees the betrayal not just as against the husband, his master, but as against God, his ultimate master. His decision is not based upon, uh, he could have said, how could I do such a wicked thing? I might lose my job. I might end up in jail. But instead he said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Wise man. Even to be around her. I guess if if she came into the room, he went out the other door. And then you have Genesis 39, 37. Uh, Joseph actually has been thrown into jail. What happened? Well, Potiphar's wife keeps pursuing him. And eventually, she, she gets close to him. And her foot catches his cloak. And as he runs away, his clothes are stripped off him. You know, he just had a robe on. She catches the tail of it, comes off. And he runs away, naked. But then she's got the cloak, and she goes to her husband, and she says, you know, Joseph came to me, and he made this advance, and he took his clothes off, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And before you know it, Potiphar is very angry, and he throws, has Joseph thrown into jail, believing his wife. I'm not sure why he believed his wife over Joseph, but he did. And Joseph ends up in jail. And that, now we skip forward, and... Uh, uh, we have a uh, uh, situation here where Joseph in jail has, uh, he has this ability, remember the whole uh, dream coat thing, that, that term comes out of the fact that he sees dreams, he gets dreams, and he, he can interpret the dreams. And somebody in, in jail, uh, a cupbearer for the Pharaoh, uh, knows this, and Pharaoh has had some dreams, but none of Pharaoh's people can interpret these dreams. And so this cupbearer says, well, I knew this guy in jail, Joseph, and he knows how to interpret dreams. Maybe you should go to him. And so uh, he goes, and actually, Joseph's interpretation is not, his compass is not oriented towards pleasing Pharaoh. He's honest about it. He tells him, there's going to be some tough times. There's going to be good times and tough times. And you better use the good times to prepare for the bad times. And so it says that Pharaoh recognized that the Spirit of God was in Joseph and trusted him as a result. Again, 
Joseph's integrity, his trustworthiness, was based upon the Spirit of God being recognizable in him. His life's compass was oriented, pointed toward God. Pharaoh saw that in him. And Pharaoh said, can we find anyone like this man in whom the Spirit of God abides? And then he said to Joseph, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and and wise as you. And as a result, Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of overseeing the kingdom to make sure they are prepared for the seven years of famine. That's an amazing thing there. Now, note, note through all this, he doesn't say, I note that you are a uh, person of integrity. I note that you are a, a man of quality. But instead, he says, you are a man in whom the Spirit of God abides. Because the compass is pointed toward God. And then the last example here I'll use, and there are other examples in the story of Joseph that we could But this is one of my favorite little passages in all of the scripture. Uh, Joseph has, uh, because of what he has done, uh, despite the fact he was sold by his brothers into slavery, despite the fact that he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, everything has come together to a point where his brothers come into Egypt because the famine in their land, they cannot survive. And of course, they don't recognize Joseph. Uh, I mean, he's grown. It's been some years now. They don't recognize him, and they come to him begging for food. And Joseph eventually, so the story takes quite a while here, but eventually Joseph is taking care, going to take care of these brothers. And, and when they uh, realize who he is, and after their father has died, they say, you know, <laughs> they're conniving. It may be that Joseph will hate us, because our father has died, and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Maybe he's going to look back to the fact that we sold him into slavery, and then he is going to pay us back for all that evil. So why don't we do this? Let's send a message to Joseph saying, Joseph, dad gave his command, this command before he died. He said, he said uh, Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, the dad never said this, but the brothers say, well, dad's gone, so nothing can be proven to say that he didn't say this. So we'll just tell Joseph that he said this because we're afraid that Joseph is going to throw us into prison, have us executed, who knows what he's going to do. They don't know Joseph. They don't, they, they, they don't for some reason, see the internal compass toward God that everybody else sees. So their fear causes them in their untrustworthiness and their lack of integrity to lie. And it says that when they spoke to Joseph, Joseph wept. And the brothers all came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. They don't know what the weeping means, perhaps. They, they're not sure, but they, they go down on their knees and they said, You know, we're your slaves. Do with, do with us what you will. And it, but Joseph, this is, this is the part I like so much. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God? Do not fear. I'm not God. I don't have the right to make judgment upon you. As for you, you did mean evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph had that compass where he was able to see as he followed God all through his life, he looked back. I mean, can you imagine your brothers wanting to kill you? 
and barely being convinced not to kill you, and then selling you into slavery. Can you imagine the traumatic experience? I mean, today, you'd be in all kinds of counseling for that sort of thing. But for some reason, because of his great faith in God, Joseph was able to see clearly that God had taken all of these things so that he could end up in Egypt, so that he could end up in that prison, so that he could meet that cupbearer, that the cupbearer would tell Pharaoh about the fact that uh, Joseph could interpret dreams, that Pharaoh would recognize the Spirit of God in him and put him in charge, and eventually so that when the brothers came out of, of their land into Egypt, starving, that Joseph would be in a position of power so that he could help them. He said, what you meant for evil, God has used for good. You see, when we make choices in life, folks, if our compass is oriented on God, we're not making the choice on the basis of some, well, where's the advantage in this right now? Which is a very short-term way to say things, to, to, to see things and to live your life out. What's my immediate gratification? What can I get out of this situation right now? But Joseph saw the long-term effect of everything in his life, things that may have looked bad at the time or things that looked good, but he saw it all working together for God's will. When we make choices, we have to have that long view. We have to be able to look back and say, God has done this and this and this and brought us to this place, and we know that our compass says that God wants us to, to obey his word, that God wants us to uh, end up in in that eternal kingdom, and to be with him. How do we get there? How do we, as John Wesley said, land safely on that shore, on those shores of heaven? How do we get there? And so our choice is based on that compass pointing toward God rather than on the immediate, how do we please the world? How do we have people say good things about us? How do we get more people into our church That sounds like a great thing, but if your decisions to do that, the things you're doing to do that, are not within God's will, then you're not a church of integrity. You know, I I know at times in my life the temptation to lie, the temptation to nobody will know, it, it, it hits us all at times. We're faced with those choices constantly. And we look around in our world and it seems like the only reason most people escape uh, from, from being punished for those things is because we're not big famous people. Everybody in Hollywood seems to be having a finger pointed at them. Everybody in Washington having a finger pointed at them for the things they have done wrong. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all lacked in integrity. At times our compass has been pointing the wrong way. But if we're going to make choices in the future that are within God's will, then we need to have that compass pointed toward him. And we need to be a church of integrity just as Joseph was that man of integrity. Let us pray. Holy Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Joseph. Uh, Father, within your word there are so many places where we can see how trusting in the trustworthy God and our, and our creator, our father who cares for us and loves for us and extends to us his eternal grace, how making choices based upon uh, being oriented towards you can result in lives of glory, in lives that glorify you, in lives, Father, that inspire others, in lives, Father, that may not end up 
uh, bringing to us what the world thinks is valuable, but will end up with us reigning with you forever. Father, we thank you again for Joseph, for his life. We thank you, Father, that uh, you, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And we thank you that this morning we can gather around the table, the table of our Lord. Father, we can share together in remembrance of what he has done for us. We pray this in his holy name, and amen. Let us join together in this covenant prayer for a new year. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Amen.